has settled on the evening of the 24th of November, 1440. A sumptuous supper has been enjoyed at Edinburgh Castle, but as the music fades, the smile on the face of the 16-year-old William Douglas wavers as a last dish is carried to the table and he is presented with the severed head of a black bull. The black bull's head is an ancient symbol of impending death and William's advisor, Sir Malcolm Fleming, sensing danger, kicks back his chair and reaches for his sword, only to remember that it was left outside the doors of the great hall. How will he save his liege lord, William, the sixth Earl of Douglas, on this night? The events that unfolded that night would later be known as the Black Dinner, and the events would shock the Kingdom of Scotland to the core, result in years of bloody strife, and partly inspire the author, George R. R. Martin, and his brilliant writing of The Red Wedding in his book, A Game of Thrones. Now, the roots of the Black Dinner were to be found many years prior, and I will start the telling of this tale in early spring of 1402. David Stuart, Duke of Rothsey, and heir to the throne of Scotland, is dead. David Stuart had been captured earlier that year by his own uncle, Robert Stuart, a man known for his ruthless ambition to the throne, who together with David Stuart's brother-in-law, Archibald Douglas, imprisoned David Stuart in Falkland Castle, and there they left the young boy, he was only 23 years old, to starve to death. But though there was clear evidence of the guilt of Robert Stuart, I mean people had seen him doing it, he was exonerated of any wrongdoing by a royal council. And though Robert Stuart was still not king, which he dreamed of, the actual king, his brother, Robert III, was old and frail, and all Robert Stuart had to do was wait a little while longer. And right now, you might be wondering, well, hang on a minute, didn't you say they were brothers, yet they're both called Robert? Yes, well, the king was christened John, but took the name of Robert after Robert the Bruce when he was crowned. Anyway, the king was ailing, Robert Stuart was waiting, and, well, while he waited, he thought about ridding himself of King Robert's only remaining boy, his son, James Stuart, because that boy was really the only thing that stood between Robert Stuart and the crown. When Robert III died in 1406, his 12-year-old son, James Stuart, became king, and those concerns that had been mild about his safety, they now grew to real fears as his uncle plotted to take the crown, and Robert Stuart plotted together with Clan Douglas, the most powerful clan of the powerful clans of Scotland. By March 1406, the situation was precarious, and so the king's supporters decided that the king could no longer stay in Scotland, and 12-year-old James Stuart was put aboard a ship bound for the 
relative safety of France, a traditional ally of Scotland. But this young king was born to a life of strife, for on the 22nd of March, only days into the journey to France, James's ship was boarded by English pirates. At the time, England and Scotland had a less than cordial relationship. I think you might actually call it a non-relationship, as they battled each other continuously. The pirates delivered, for a hefty fee, King James to the English crown, who now held the Scottish king as a hostage. However, the English would soon discover that while his supporters back home in Scotland really wanted his return, James's rival to the throne, his uncle Robert, had quickly seized control of the instruments of governance in Scotland, and he was in absolutely no hurry to see the return of his nephew, who by rights was now King of Scotland. James Stuart of Scotland was to spend 18 long years as a hostage in England. He was initially well treated by King Henry IV of England, and it was written that James was well-fed, well-clothed, and well-lettered, which means that he was given a good education. He was allowed visits from his allies in Scotland, and he was also a frequent guest at the royal court. But upon the accession of King Henry's son, the famed Henry V in 1413, James's freedom was suspended and he was placed in the Tower of London and treated as a prisoner. James was held within the same prison quarters as his cousin, Murdoch Stuart. Murdoch Stuart, whose father had caused the death by starvation of James's elder brother David. Murdoch Stuart had been taken prisoner by the English a while back in the aftermath of one of the countless battles between Scotland and England. And though one Scot was very like another for the English, James Stuart and Murdoch Stuart represented two feuding branches of the Stuart line. Their fathers had been brothers and deadly enemies, and this would play out in the future. But for now, James Stuart kept his peace and concentrated his energy on the regaining of the goodwill of the English crown, and he did so by 1420. And this could be seen by all as he accompanied Henry V on his very successful campaigns in France. James Stuart supported Henry V against the French, which was unusual as Scotland and France were traditional allies. And in return for his support, Henry V allowed for the execution of Scottish knights who had fought for the French but who had opposed James Stuart back in the day. It was a give-and-take situation, 
and there is ample evidence in the contemporary writing of the time to prove that James Stewart admired and respected Henry V's personal rule and the power invested in the English crown personally, as opposed to the Scottish rule, where the crown was heavily reliant on the powerful clans of the time, the most powerful of them being his and his father's old rival, the Douglas clan. So, Henry V and James Stuart learned to get on very well. But if one thing was certain in late medieval Britain, it was that good times usually came to a swift end. And so, as good as it was, the friendship between Henry V and James Stuart was to be short-lived, as Henry V died in France in 1422, and as James Stuart joined the procession to escort the dead king back to England, he must have been wondering, what will fate throw in my way now? Well, it turned out that the council around the infant king Henry VI, who had succeeded his father, really, really wanted to rid themselves of their Scottish prisoners. I mean, a hostage is practically useless if no one is willing to pay up. And by this time, James Stewart had for some years been in contact with Archibald Douglas, the man complicit in his brother's death. Now, James Stewart was probably not on the oh, I forgive you mode, but he was very aware that he needed powerful allies if he were ever to return to Scotland. And fortunately for him, the alliance between Clan Douglas and his uncle, that had set in motion his own captivity in England, had shattered, and Archibald Douglas was now ready to advocate for the return of James Stuart if James Stuart would promise Douglas a high position once James was officially crowned king. And so, a ransom of 40,000 sterling, the equivalent of around 20 to 30 million today, was arranged, though it was not immediately paid and actually was never really paid in full. But, nevertheless, on the 5th of April, 1424, James Stuart crossed the border into Scotland, where he was met by Murdoch Stewart, who had been released some time earlier, and on May the 21st, 1424, James was crowned James I of Scotland. At last he was king, and at last Scotland once again had a monarch who was of age and who would surely bring peace to this much-troubled kingdom. Indeed, at his coronation, James handed out titles and knighted a number of young men, including the son of Murdoch Stuart, Murdoch, with whom he had once been imprisoned, Murdoch, the son of the man who had put James's brother to death. He now stood beside the King of Scotland and watched as the King knighted his son in front all and saundry. Surely this was a king come to right the wrongs of years past and put an end to bloodshed. Oh well, 
James, King of Scotland, was merely keeping up appearances as he bided his time. For already the following year, fortune played right into James's hands as his ally, Murdoch Stuart's son, rebelled against the crown, while a number of Murdoch Stuart's allies died in France fighting on behalf of the French. This left Murdoch Stuart and his branch of the Stuart family politically and not least militarily exposed and weakened. James moved efficiently against his old enemies who were accused of treason and on May the 25th, 1425, almost a year to the day of his coronation, James, King of Scotland, watched the execution of the son and grandson of the man who had posed such a deadly danger for his own family. Now their execution opened up a power vacuum that was quickly filled by other branches of the Stuart family. Yes, they were a numerous lot, and these other branches hoped to gain power through close contact with James. However, they were quickly to discover that James was keen to make himself independent of his powerful family, and the estates previously held by Murdoch Stuart were forfeited to the crown and not evenly distributed to the powerful clans of Scotland, as they might have hoped and indeed expected. Now, this was very good for James's personal finances, but politically, it would prove the first of many strategic mistakes by James, because the finances of the powerful clans of Scotland had been strained for years, for there had been no reliable avenues of income during the long years of James's captivity. They might have gotten rid of him, but the royal revenue was not paid out while he was away. And this had resulted in the powerful clans directly allocating funds for themselves directly through royal taxes and customs. When James then returned to Scotland, he reallocated these funds for himself, and then he raised the taxes to hereful unseen heights. And so it went that the friends he had made once again turned into enemies. James proved to be a reckless spender. For the taxes he received, he spent not on the betterment or defense of the realm, but he spent huge amounts of money building palaces and importing expensive goods from Flanders across the Channel. He imported, amongst other things, handmade tennis balls. For James was an avid tennis player, a game for the nobility at the time. Ultimately, though, James proved to be the most dangerous kind of sovereign. He was crafty enough to bide his time when it came to striking his enemies in revenge, yet he was not quite clever enough to retain his allies in times of need. And though he had been treated cordially enough at the English court, once he became king, James resumed the traditional stance of enemy towards England, and through the 1430s, James fought 
and James lost a number of battles against the English. In October 1436, James called a general council of the high nobility and once again demanded taxes raised so he could continue his campaigns against the English armies around the Scottish borders. The council refused him point blank. And then, as voices grew louder, things escalated dramatically when Sir Robert Graham, a former vassal of that branch of the Stuart family whom James had destroyed in 1425, he actually tries to arrest James on the grounds of destroying the realm. Swords were drawn, and after an intense standoff, it was Robert Graham, not James, who was arrested, imprisoned, and surprisingly enough, simply banished instead of executed, as had been James's preferred method of dealing with those who displeased him. James seemed not to have realized the depth of opposition against him, nor did he actually deduct how much support Graham actually wielded. For Graham was easily removed from prison. He simply escaped, helped not least by the Earl of Athol, James's last surviving uncle, an erstwhile friend, now turned bitter enemy. By 1437, a conspiracy had formed with the intent of ridding Scotland of James I. Spies within the royal household kept the conspirators abreast with James's every movement, and on the 20th of February, 1437, the conspirators received the news that James was on the road, having ventured out of the confines of his heavily fortified castles and was spending the night at the Dominican friary in the town of Perth, a residence that was habitually used by the kings of Scotland when they were in that area. On the night of the 21st of February, co-conspirators within the royal household itself opened the outer doors of the friary and let inside a group of around 30 people, including James's uncle and Robert Graham. James heard the commotion as the conspirators made their way towards him. He heard the struggles and killing of his loyal retainers. And finally, finally, he himself realized he was in mortal peril. The passage in front of his quarters was blocked. The conspirators were slowly making their way up the stairs to his very own chambers. Trapped, James, together with his wife, the English-born Joan Buford, led through the dark, dank tunnels beneath his floorboards. But as he stood in that stench-filled darkness, he remembered that he himself had had the tunnel blocked up years back when he had grown annoyed at continually losing his expensive tennis balls down into the very bowels of the tunnels. Running steps drew ever closer. James, with only a small knife he had managed to grab, could find no hiding place against his attackers. And as their torches came nearer, he must have seen that they had one thing and one thing only in mind the death of the king. And in that dark, dank 
stench-filled tunnel, James I of Scotland was killed, with Robert Graham himself doing the killing. And just as the assassins of Julius Caesar had been convinced that they would be lauded as having rid the country of a tyrant, so too had James's killers thought that they would be celebrated. But the killing brought an ease and a wave of chaos, and the assassins were quickly apprehended. Some were betrayed, and within three months they had all died brutal deaths. By order of James's queen, Joan Buford, who had stood by him in the tunnels and had herself been injured and left for dead. But she had survived, and she exacted a terrible revenge on those who had wronged her and the now dead king. James I left behind a six-year-old son, who was now King James II, and he was recognized as such. But, if you remember, James I's own travails had started when he, as a young boy, became king, and powerful clans had seen that as an opportunity to seize power. Now history seemed to repeat itself, for the new king was only six years old, and clan Douglas, long held back by his father, pushed themselves to the fore, declaring that they would rule on the king's behalf, and blocked Joan Buford's attempts at ruling on behalf of her own son. She was English, after all, and no English queen was set to rule the Scots. Now again, the powerful clans smelled blood and power in the air. Those wronged by James I wished for revenge, and those close to the clan Douglas just wished for more. More power, more influence. As unsteady as the rule of James I had been, his son's start as James II was equally uneasy, with the looming shadow of Clan Douglas threatening to destabilize the realm. Next time, dinner is served. I will leave it there for today. If you liked this episode, please leave a like wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, I have been Eva, and thank you so much for listening.